You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've spent an obscene amount of time getting back into Animal Crossing this week. And yeah, that's pretty much all I've done this week. Not gonna lie. Anyway, this week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we've got Spencer and House of Gucci. Spencer is a biopic of a handful of days in the life of Princess Diana right before she divorces Prince Charles. Kristen Stewart, whom plays Diana, acted her ass off in this, but not as much as her wig did. Overall, it's a very dry film that honestly makes Diana out to be more of an unhinged woman than a tragic figure. So this one, you can kind of wait till it comes out onto VOD. It's fine. It's not to the caliber of this director. He also directed Jackie, which I thought was an incredible film and had a very nuanced portrayal of of Jackie. The same was not done for Diana in this film. So I'd say this one's a pass. Then there's House of Gucci. Now, as a genetically Italian individual whom did a short film, which involved Italian accents extensively, I can say with a fair level of confidence that the accents in this film are a C at best. There's been a lot of news about Lady Gaga's accent in the last couple of weeks. She does a fine job compared to some of the others. She's actually fantastic compared to Jeremy Irons or Jared Leto. Jeremy Irons, spoiler alert, he's not in for a ton of the movie. There's just, towards the end of his scenes, he just stopped doing the accent altogether. So there's that. And then Jared Leto sounded in this film exactly what I'm guessing Chris Pratt in the Mario Brothers movie is going to sound like and not in a good way. Jared Leto is the honestly the weakest part of this film, which I was bummed out by because I have been very impressed with his acting overall. And this was this was he was cartoony. It was just not good. That being said, this movie is sleek. The editing is impeccable and you wouldn't have to pull my arm to see it again. This is definitely a theater film. It's very flashy. It's very it's it's a very sexy movie and it's fantastic in a theater. This week, we're wrapping up our history month as we cover the life of the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, and how the events in the film Lincoln differ from history. I've got a very kind of, well, not personal tie with this, but I always remember this movie very fondly because it came out while I was shooting aforementioned short film when I was in college. And one of my crew got very, very drunk and sat in the back seat of my sound guy's car, kicking the seat, screaming, let's go see Lincoln, let's go see Lincoln. So no matter what, every time I watch this movie, I think of that. So... That's pretty much what I'm thinking about the whole time we're recording this episode today. So, you know, fun. So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. We saw you, right? We, we were at... Uh, it was at Gettysburg. At, you boys fight at Gettysburg? 
No, we didn't fight there. We just signed up last month. We saw him two years ago at the cemetery dedication. Yeah, we heard you speak. We heard... Ah, damn, damn, damn. Uh, hey, how tall are you anyway? Gee, shut up. Could you hear what I said? No, sir, not much. It was... Uh, it four was... score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth from this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty to be dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That's good. Thank you. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are... We are... We met on a great battlefield of that war. That's good. Thank you. We come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It His is, uncles, uh, they died on the, on the second well, day of fighting. I know the last part. It is, uh... Company up! It is rather... Move it out! Boys, best go and find your company. Thank you. Thank you, sir. God bless you. God bless you, too. God bless you. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Abraham Lincoln was born to Thomas Lincoln and Nancy Hanks Lincoln. Yes, Tom Hanks is a distant descendant of Abraham Lincoln. The couple had two other children, Lincoln's older sister Sarah and a younger brother named Thomas who died in infancy. The Lincoln family were forced to move from Lincoln's birthplace of Kentucky to Perry County, Indiana, due to a land dispute in 1817. In Indiana, the family technically squatted on public land to scrap out a living in a crude shelter and hunted game and farmed a small plot. Eventually, Lincoln's father was able to buy that land. When young Lincoln was nine years old, his mother died of Tremetol, which is also known as milk sickness, which is a condition that occurs if you drink the milk of a cow that has eaten a poisonous plant. The event was devastating to Abe, and the youngster grew more alienated from his father and quietly resented the extensive work and responsibilities placed on him at an early age. In December 1819, a little over a year after his mother's death, Lincoln's father remarried to a woman with three children. She and Lincoln quickly bonded. Though both his parents were most likely illiterate, Lincoln's stepmother encouraged him to read. In all, Lincoln probably only received about 18 months in total of formal education, and that education was acquired a few weeks or days at a time. Reading material was in short supply in the Indiana wilderness, and neighbors would later recall Lincoln trekking for miles just to borrow books from other locals. In March 1830, the family moved again, this time to Macon County, Illinois. Soon after, his father decided to move the family once more, and a 22-year-old Lincoln struck out on his own, making his own way in manual labor. The six-foot-four young man was known for his affinity with an axe before he moved to the small community of New Salem, Illinois. There, over a period of years, he worked as a shopkeeper, postmaster, and eventually general store owner. It was in New Salem that Lincoln acquired the social skills and honed the storytelling talent that made him popular both then and later on in life. In 1834, Lincoln began his political career and was elected to the Illinois State Legislature as a member of the Whig Party. During this time, he supported the Whig politics of government-sponsored infrastructure and protective tariffs. 
This political leaning led him to formulate his early views on slavery, not so much as a moral wrong, but as an impediment to economic development. It was also around this time that he decided to become a lawyer, teaching himself the law by reading William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. After being admitted to the bar in 1837, Lincoln moved to Springfield, Illinois, and began to practice in the John T. Stewart Law Firm. He married Mary Todd, a member of a predominant Kentucky family, and in 1840, Lincoln partnered with William Herden to found a law firm. Lincoln made a good living in his early years as a lawyer, but found that Springfield alone didn't quite offer enough work. So as a side hustle, he followed the court as it made its rounds on the circuit to the various county seats in Illinois. Lincoln would serve a single term in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1847 to 1849. His intro into national politics was seemingly unremarkable as his term was so brief. He was the lone Whig from the state of Illinois and showed party loyalty, but found few political allies. Lincoln used his term in office to speak out against the Mexican-American War and supported Zachary Taylor for president in 1848. His criticism of the war made him quite unpopular back home. This led to Lincoln deciding not to run for a second term and instead return to Springfield to practice law. In 1854, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which repealed the Missouri Compromise, allowing individual states and territories to decide for themselves whether or not to allow slavery. The law provoked violent opposition in Kansas and Illinois, and it eventually gave rise to the Republican Party, which at the time was a little bit closer to modern-day Democrats and policy than the beliefs of the modern Republican Party. The passing of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in Congress revived Lincoln's political prowess and his views on slavery moved more toward moral indignation. Lincoln officially joined the Republican Party in 1856. In 1857, the Supreme Court issued the Dred Scott decision declaring that African Americans were not U.S. citizens, whether they were enslaved or not, and therefore had no inherent rights. Now, Lincoln didn't feel like black people were equal to white people. He did believe, however, that America's founders intended that all men were created with certain inalienable rights. So Lincoln decided to challenge sitting U.S. Senator Stephen Douglas for his seat. In his nomination acceptance speech, Lincoln criticized Douglas, the Supreme Court, and President James Buchanan for promoting slavery and declared the soon-to-be-famous quote, A house divided cannot stand. During Lincoln's 1858 campaign against Douglas, he participated in seven debates held in different cities across Illinois. The two candidates didn't disappoint the public, giving stirring debates on issues ranging from states' rights to Western expansion, but the central issue at each debate was always slavery. In the end, Douglas won the seat, but the exposure catapulted Lincoln into national politics. With this newly enhanced political profile, in 1860, political operatives in Illinois organized a campaign to support Lincoln for the big job, the presidency. On May 18, 1858, at the Republican National Convention in Chicago, Lincoln passed better-known candidates to clinch the nomination for the Republican Party to run for president. Lincoln's nomination was due in part to his overall moderate views on slavery, his support for improving the national infrastructure, and the protective tariff. During the general election, Lincoln once again faced Stephen Douglas, though this time he bested him in a four-way race. 
Lincoln received not quite 40% of the popular vote, but carried 180 of 303 electoral college votes, clinching the U.S. presidency. Abraham Lincoln would become the 16th president of the United States. Following his election to the presidency in 1860, Lincoln selected a strong cabinet composed of many of his political rivals, including William Seward, Salmon P. Chase, Edward Bates, and Edmund Stanton. Molded straight out of the saying, hold your friends close and your enemies closer, Lincoln's cabinet became one of his strongest assets in his first term, and he would need them as the clouds of war gathered over the nation the following year. Before Lincoln's inauguration in March 1861, seven southern states had already seceded from the Union, and by April, the U.S. military installation Fort Sumter was under siege in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina, by Confederate troops. In the early morning hours of April 12, 1861, the guns stationed to protect the harbor blazed toward the fort, signaling the start of the U.S. Civil War, America's costliest and bloodiest war. Lincoln responded to the onset of the war by wielding powers as no other president before him. He distributed $2 million from the Treasury for war material without an appropriation from Congress. He called for 75,000 volunteers in the military service without a declaration of war. And he suspended the writ of habeas corpus, arresting and imprisoning suspected Confederacy sympathizers without a warrant. Crushing the rebellion would be difficult under the best of circumstances, but the civil war, after decades of white-hot partisan politics, was especially difficult. From all directions, Lincoln faced complications and opposition. He was often at odds with his generals, his cabinet, his party, and a majority of the American people. Overall, people supported the idea of abolishing slavery if it made the war end faster, moral obligations be damned. The Union Army's first year and a half of battlefield defeats made it difficult to keep up morale and support strong enough for a reunification of the nation. But the Union victory at Antietam on September 22, 1862 was just enough to keep those whom still believed in the cause hopeful and gave Lincoln the confidence to officially change the goals of the war. On January 1st, 1863, Lincoln delivered the Emancipation Proclamation, changing the cause of the Civil War from saving the Union to abolishing slavery. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation stated that all individuals who were held as enslaved people in rebel states, quote unquote, henceforth shall be free. The action was more symbolic than effective because the North didn't control any states in rebellion and the proclamation didn't apply to border states, Tennessee, or some Louisiana parishes. On November 19, 1863, Lincoln delivered what would become his most famous speech and one of the most important speeches in American history, the Gettysburg Address. In front of a crowd of about 15,000 people, Lincoln delivered his 272-word speech, which, fun fact, I had to memorize when I was 17 for AP U.S. history, at one of the bloodiest battlefields of the Civil War. The place is now known as the Gettysburg National Cemetery, which is in Pennsylvania. The Civil War, Lincoln said in his speech, was the ultimate test of the preservation of the Union created in 1776, and the people who died at Gettysburg fought to uphold this cause. Lincoln went on to quote the Declaration of Independence in this speech, saying it was up to the government to ensure that the, quote, government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. And this union was, quote, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. 
1864, the Confederate armies had somehow eluded major defeat, and Lincoln was convinced he'd be a one-term president. George B. McClellan, a former commander of the Army of the Potomac, challenged Lincoln for the presidency, but Lincoln's fears turned out to be unwarranted. He received 55% of the popular vote and 212 of 243 electoral votes. So yeah, he, he beamed McClellan. Since this episode is about Lincoln and not the Civil War, we're going to skip ahead a little bit to April 9th, 1865, when Robert E. Lee, general of the Confederate Army, surrendered his forces to Union General and future president himself, Ulysses S. Grant. The Civil War, at this point, was essentially over. This harbored in the Reconstruction Era, which was the era of reintegrating the southern states back into the Union, and had already kind of begun during the Civil War as early as 1863 in areas that had come firmly under Union military control. Lincoln favored a policy of quick reunification with a minimum of retribution. He was confronted by a radical group of Republicans in the Senate and House who wanted complete allegiance and repentance from former Confederates. Before any political debate had any chance to occur, tragedy struck. On a night out at the theater on April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by well-known actor and Confederate sympathizer John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Lincoln was taken to the Peterson House across the street and laid in a coma for nine hours before dying early the next morning. Lincoln's body lay in state at the U.S. Capitol before a funeral train took him back to his final resting place in Springfield, Illinois. 147 years after Lincoln's assassination, one of America's most renowned filmmakers would make a film about the man many historians hold as the greatest American president. I can't accomplish a goddamn thing of any human meaning or worth until we cure ourselves of slavery and end this pestilential war. And whether any of you or anyone else knows it, I know I need this. This amendment is that cure. We're stepped out upon the world stage now. Now! With the fate of human dignity in our hands. Blood's been spilled to afford us this moment. Now! 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 And you grousel and heckle and dodge about like petty-fogging Tammany Hall hucksters. See what is before you. See the here and now. That's the hardest thing. The only thing that accounts. Abolishing slavery by constitutional provision settles the fate for all coming time. Not only of the millions now in bondage, but of unborn Millions to come. Steven Spielberg, which if you haven't heard of him, I don't know why you're here, maker of iconic films like Josh, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, and Jurassic Park, had been trying to make a film about the United States' 16th president as far back as 2001, when DreamWorks secured the rights to the book Team of Rivals, which was about Lincoln's presidential cabinet. 
The book focuses on Lincoln's mostly successful attempts to get everybody to work together, despite their conflicting personalities and political ideations, in order to win the Civil War. Several scripts by a few different writers were constructed between 2001 and 2006, but Spielberg was unsatisfied with all of them. Eventually, he would hire playwright-turned-screenwriter Tony Kushner to take a crack at the script. Kushner found this assignment quite daunting, stating, quote, I have no idea what made him great. I don't understand what he did any more than I understand how William Shakespeare wrote Hamlet or Mozart wrote Cosi Fantute. As a Jewish writer, Lincoln's abolitionist views appealed to Kushner, and although he felt Lincoln was Christian, Lincoln, though raised Baptist, never joined a church as an adult, he noted the president rarely quoted the New Testament of the Bible and that his, quote, thinking and his ethical deliberation seemed very Talmudic. The Talmud is the Jewish text of religious law. For those of you who didn't know that, it's me. I'm those people. By late 2008, Kushner joked he was on his, quote, 967th thousand book about Abraham Lincoln. Kushner's work initially yielded a 500-page draft focused on just four months of Lincoln's life. By February 2009, though, he had rewritten it to focus on just two months, the time period when Lincoln was preoccupied with adopting the 13th Amendment. English-Irish actor and famed method thespian Daniel Day-Lewis had been approached by Steven Spielberg as early as 2003 to play the role of Abraham Lincoln, but turned it down because he thought the idea of him playing the role was, quote-unquote, ridiculous. Other actors were considered, and eventually Liam Neeson was cast in 2005 and researched the part extensively before leaving the project in 2010, believing he had aged out of the part. At 58, Neeson was only about two years older than Lincoln was at the time of the events of the film, but he was going through some other shit at the time, including the death of his wife, which also played a part in Neeson giving up the part. By November 2010, Day-Lewis had changed his mind and was announced as the replacement for Liam Neeson. Steven Spielberg was granted a $50 million budget for the film. The studios were hesitant to give him any more than that because the last time Spielberg had made a film similar to this, 1997's Amistad, the film had been a financial disaster and Spielberg set to work scouting locations for the film. Filming would take place in Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Petersburg, Virginia. The Virginia State Capitol served as the exteriors and interiors of the U.S. Capitol and the exteriors of the White House. The House of Delegates inside the building was modeled into the House of Representatives chamber set. Scenes representing Grover's Theater were filmed in Richmond, Virginia at Virginia Repertory Theater's November Theater. Lincoln would premiere at the New York Film Festival on April 8, 2012. The film received widespread critical acclaim and made $275 million at the box office. Critics especially focused on Day-Lewis's portrayal of Abraham Lincoln, a role which would give him his third Academy Award. The film also led to some real-world good occurring. Medical doctor Ranjan Batra stated that he was inspired to investigate the history of the 13th Amendment in Mississippi, where he lives, after seeing the film. Batra discovered that although the 13th Amendment was adopted throughout the country in 1865, Mississippi's formal ratification of the amendment in 1995 was not official because the U.S. archivist was never officially notified. 
Butcher informed his colleague Ken Sullivan about this, and when Sullivan saw Lincoln, he said he was further inspired to fix the matter. Sullivan then contacted Mississippi Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman to make the ratification official, which he did in 2013, thus meaning Mississippi officially ratified the 13th Amendment, 148 years after the fact. So, Lincoln was an award-winning box office hit that finally saw the 13th Amendment getting ratified in Mississippi. But how much did the film Lincoln get correct historically? You'd think a lot, given how much Kushner claimed to research, but let's find out. If we submit ourselves to law, Alex, even submit to losing freedoms, the freedom to oppress, for instance, we may discover other freedoms previously unknown to us, had you kept faith with democratic process, as frustrating as that can be? Come, sir. Spare us at least these pieties. Did you defeat us with ballots? How the hell do you union together? Through democracy? How many hundreds of thousands have died during your administration? Your union, sir, is bonded in cannon fire and death. It may be all right. But say all we've done is show the world that democracy isn't chaos. That there is a great invisible strength in a people's union. Say we've shown that a people can endure awful sacrifice and yet cohere. Mightn't that save at least the idea of democracy to aspire to? eventually to become worthy of? At all rates, whatever may be proven by blood and sacrifice must have been proved by now. While Lincoln is far more historically accurate than last week's Braveheart, there are a lot of inaccuracies in this film. Most of it was historical license used to tell the story. There are a lot of nitpicky things that you can kind of gloss over that I chose not to mention. For example, the manner in which a flag was raised in the film. Apparently the crank thing wasn't historically accurate. Like that kind of stuff we're gonna just... Every movie's got, every period film's got little tiny ones like that. We're going to go over the big historical oopsies. Once again, we're starting right at the beginning of the film when two Union soldiers recite the Gettysburg Address to Lincoln while he is making a visit to the troops. Though it's a very touching and inspiring scene that helps emphasize the devotion of Union soldiers to the cause, there is historically almost no chance that the speech was memorized by anyone at that time. The Gettysburg Address did not achieve the type of iconic nature and, you know, Americana status it holds today until the 20th century. A scene in the film that shows Lincoln at a flag-raising ceremony has him pulling his speech out of his top hat. As president, Lincoln would have had secretaries with him and would just not have done this as it would have looked mad undignified. This affectation is not all fiction, though, and was actually pulled from a habit in his earlier life from his days as a lawyer. During that time, Lincoln was known to keep his notes in the lining of his hat. Contrary to events shown in the film, Mary Todd Lincoln did not keep an eye on Republican leader and fervent abolitionist Thaddeus Stevens, Tommy Lee Jones' character, from the House Gallery. 
Well, in recent years, we've come to know that Mrs. Lincoln did have a very keen political mind and a, at times, volatile relationship with Stevens. It would have been very odd for the First Lady to watch any House proceedings, regardless of if it was something she cared about or not. Todd and Stevens did have confrontations historically, notably around his investigations into her spending habits. But Mrs. Lincoln would have never verbally assaulted him at a White House function as she does in the movie. That would have caused quite the stir. Speaking of the House of Representatives and its proceedings, Thaddeus Stevens never called a congressman a fatuous nincompoop during a debate. The same rules that governed the House of Representatives then govern it today. Members are not allowed to directly address each other during a debate. They have to address the speaker, who would have very likely ruled that Stevens was out of line if he resulted to childish name-calling. When Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens and the rest of the Confederate delegation arrive in Union territory in the film, they were not greeted by a regiment of black soldiers in real life. This would have been seen as an act of hostility that would have threatened any chance of peace talks. The scene did serve as a metaphor, however, and helped illustrate that over 200,000 black soldiers fought for the Union. This convoy for peace talks did happen, but they were heading to Fortress Monroe, not Washington, D.C. Lincoln would meet them there several days after the 13th Amendment vote had already occurred. Lincoln often spoke of a mysterious recurring dream about a ship like he does in the film. However, Lincoln usually interpreted the dream as not being about the 13th Amendment, but instead as an omen of military victory. Lincoln's secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, wrote about Lincoln telling him about the dream while they were waiting on an update from the front, stating that Lincoln thought it was about upcoming battles. According to White House guard William Henry Crook, Lincoln also had the dream the night before he was assassinated. One historical inaccuracy that really didn't go over with modern politicians was the film's climax, during which time the vote on the 13th Amendment takes place. Congressman Joe Courtney, who is a Democrat from Connecticut, wrote an official letter to Steven Spielberg expressing how pissed he was that the film portrayed two Connecticut representatives voting nay on the amendment to abolish slavery. Courtney even pulled up the official congressional record, Love a Man with Receipts, to point out that all four members of Connecticut's delegation voted in favor of the amendment. Screenwriter Tony Kushner responded, reminding the congressman that it is just a movie. But what Kushner and most filmmakers tend to forget is that many people, honestly, let's be honest, most people, will take what they see in a film as a historic fact. You certainly can't fault a guy for wanting to preserve the integrity of his home state. Speaking of this scene, the voting was not carried out by state at this time, rather in alphabetical order based on the congressman's names. In the film, while Lincoln is conversing with the political operatives, James Spader's character, William N. Bilbo, mentioned that he couldn't bribe undecided congressmen to vote yes because so many 50-cent pieces had Lincoln's face on them. In reality, Abraham Lincoln did not appear on any U.S. currency until 1869, where his face began its money tenure on the $100 bill. Lincoln also probably never talked to political fixers like Bilbo about bribes. While Lincoln's political skills and his all-out attempt to get the amendment passed were real, he likely never met directly with the political operatives his administration employed. If he did, bribes were almost surely never discussed. 
In reality, shit definitely went down to twist the arms into getting the amendment passed, but there aren't really any documents that exist that lay out how exactly this occurred. I'm betting there's like a ton of blackmail, don't you? There's definitely some blackmail that happened. One relative accurate scene shows Thaddeus Stevens in bed with his African-American mistress slash housekeeper and acknowledging that Lincoln had made corrupt bargains to win the passage of the 13th Amendment. He may not have said this to this woman, but pronounced this fact he certainly did. And his housekeeper indeed doubled as his common-law wife, which was perhaps the worst-kept secret in Washington at the time. Something many people commented on at the release of this film was Daniel Day-Lewis's accent in the film, as it was not what they had expected. In reality, Day-Lewis's portrayal with the high-pitched voice and accent sounded, quote, uncanny, convincing, and historically right, according to Lincoln historian Harold Holzer. He didn't win that Oscar bullshitting around, kids. Finally, Lincoln's death scene is historically inaccurate. Lincoln is shown in a nightgown, lying in a hunched position on the bed. In reality, Lincoln was nude when he died, as doctors had removed the clothes to inspect his wounds and proceeded to cover him in a blanket. Also, because the dude was six foot four, Lincoln was diagonally laid on the small bed. The choice to have him in the nightgown, kind of hunched, sounds more like a preservation of dignity to me. Also, a naked tall dude placed diagonally on a bed is more likely to elicit laughter than the dire sense of circumstances and drama which were needed to be felt in that scene. In all, most of these historical inaccuracies are done to help exhibit things and paint a larger picture of what happened throughout the entirety of the Civil War, not just those couple of months. Despite the inaccuracies, no other film has ever captured the 16th president as clearly as Lincoln does. I mean, it certainly got more right than Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, so there's that. Steven Spielberg, while addressing the inconsistencies in the film at Gettysburg for the 149th anniversary of Lincoln's immortal speech, gave his reasoning behind the changes. Quote, it's a betrayal of the job of the historian, he said, to explore the unknown. But it is the job of the filmmaker to use creative imagination to recover what is lost to memory. Unavoidably, even at its very best, this resurrection is a fantasy. A dream. One of the jobs of art is to go to the impossible places that history must avoid. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care. For him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow, and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And that's gonna do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, which I'm gonna start plugging in for next year, so if you really want something, let me know. Please reach out to me on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. 
I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm off next week because in the States it is Thanksgiving. But after that, I'll be back with a one-off special episode about Olivia de Havilland, Scarlett Johansson, and how these two women's fight against major motion picture studios shape the past and possibly the future of cinema. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.